ask you to turn to Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 42. And I'm going to pick up this morning uh, from a message I think I gave about six weeks ago or maybe two months ago about Jesus being the servant of the Lord. Because we are to be servants of the Lord, there's a certain attitude, a certain spirit, a certain disposition that we are to be taking in all service ministry unto the Lord. And I'm looking to Isaiah to explain what it means to be a servant of the Lord, specifically as it will be revealed to be Jesus that we're talking about here. I'm going to read chapter 42 of Isaiah, verses 5 to 9. But before I read that, a little review. Isaiah 42, 5 to 9. We have already looked at 42, verses 1 to 4, which is one of the scriptures that God the Father quotes when Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. When Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven and he speaks two Old Testament quotes. One, Psalm 2, this is my beloved son, which is Psalm 2. Psalm 2, you know, is about the great king. I've set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. I've given all the the, the heathen, the nations to you as your inheritance. Psalm 2 is about authority, royalty, about the king, which makes sense because Jesus is going to be the king of the kingdom of heaven. But he also quotes Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 1 to 4 when he says, I put my spirit upon him, and he says this part, in him I am well pleased. And that's Isaiah chapter 42. But Isaiah 42 doesn't talk about a king. Isaiah 42 talks about a servant, a nameless, nondescript, servant. There's nothing about him that would attract you to this servant. And so why does God quote Psalm 2 about royal king and Isaiah 42 about a nameless servant and make them both apply to Jesus? And that's because the kingdom of heaven is not built upon the same principles as this world is built upon. In the kingdom of heaven, the first will be last, the last will be first, the chief of all must be the servant of all. To go up, you got to go down. And the kingdom of heaven is built on principles and foundations completely different than anything you're going to experience in the secular world. And in the kingdom of heaven, the king is the servant, and the servant is the king. And that's why God the Father would bring both of these scriptures together. We have already seen, and here's a little bit of review for you from a few weeks ago, that God's answer to set the world right, and we looked at this in Isaiah chapter 41, is to present a nameless, nondescript servant who will never draw attention to himself and who would never look to himself for his own resources. We saw in Isaiah chapter 41 that the idols of the powerful nations of the world are nothing but wind and confusion. We saw in chapter 41 that the world is in a mess 
And God calls all the nations of the world, all the mighty empires of the world, to a courtroom. And they're going to hear some testimony, and all the nations are going to ask to give their opinion and their testimony. And so you got the Assyrians, you got the Persians, you got the Babylonians, you got the Greeks, you got all these great world empires gathered together for a court scene. And God says, the world is a mess, which one of you can do anything about it? And they bring their military might, their pomp, their ceremony, their wealth, their dictatorships, their vast armies. They, they bring it all to the, to the discussion and they've got nothing that can touch the needs of this world. And when God says, but you're just wind and your confusion and the idols you trust in can do nothing to solve the issues of this world, here's my answer. And his answer is to present a servant who doesn't even have a name, and there's nothing about him that seems to want to attract the world to him. And he says, this is my servant. He will bring justice to the world. He will make everything right. Mercy and compassion will win over might. Amen. Mercy and compassion will win over force. Now, have you ever witnessed, have you been, ever been part of a church service anywhere at any time where you've witnessed what is called an ordination service? Or you're going to set somebody apart for a ministry and there's going to be some sort of official recognition by some governing authority that so-and-so is now being ordained and set apart to the ministry. Have you ever seen something like that? You know, I think we all have. Usually in such a ceremony, and we call it induction service or commissioning service or ordination service, whatever you call it, there's usually a charge, a command that is given to the person being ordained. Hands will usually be laid upon them. Prayers will be given. And very often prophetic words may be spoken over the individual who is being set apart for ministry. Now, you've got examples of this in Scripture. You have it in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. There were certain teachers and prophets at Antioch. There's five of them. Then the Holy Ghost spoke prophetically, separate now Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. They did some more prayer. They did some more fasting. They laid hands upon them, and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Often you find in Scripture that elders will be set in place in, in the same manner. They'll be officially recognized at some point. A great example is when Timothy, this is worked out in Scripture quite a bit, is when Timothy was set apart to join Paul the Apostle. And hands were laid upon Timothy. Paul laid his hands. The elders laid their hands upon Timothy. He was well recognized by the people. They had a good report. And the Bible says very specifically that at that time, um, prophetic words were spoken over Timothy and talking about the good war that he was going to have to fight. And you're, you're, you're called into this with Paul, but you're going to be faced with all kinds of challenges. But you've got the, the Spirit of God with you. And there's prophetic words spoken over Timothy to encourage him to keep on going when going with Paul could get tough. And prophetic words were given. We've all seen things like that. But this morning, I want us to go to the most important ordination service in the history of time and in the history 
of eternity. And what am I talking about? What did it sound like when God the Father commissions His Son to go into the sin-sick, idolatrous world? What did that ordination service sound like? And what did it look like? Because the Son is eternal, He's majestic, and He's all-powerful, and the Father is going to send Him into this power-hungry, idolatrous world, but he has to go as a servant. We're going to pick this up in Isaiah chapter 42. He has to go as a servant. Usually, if somebody was going to be ordained, they usually get dressed up in their nicest three-piece suit, and they're, they're going to look really, really well for presentation, for this public recognition. But for this service for Jesus... He has to lay aside all the splendid garments of eternity and he needs to present himself wrapped in a towel. And that's how he has to be presented for going into the ministry. Not splendidly dressed, but wrapped in a towel. That's the appropriate clothing to wear for ordination. That's the theme, what we've got going here, all right? At this service, did God the Father make a prophetic announcement? And the answer is yes, he did. What is the Son going to accomplish? In what spirit will it get done? Why does he have to go as a servant? He has been presented for ordination in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4 where it is already spoken that God will uphold his servant, that God delights in him, and that God will equip him with the Spirit. But when you get to verse number 5, you now have God's prophetic word spoken at his ordination service. Verses 5 to 9 is God's prophetic words at the time that Jesus is ordained and sent forth to go into the world. So would anybody be interested in hearing what God has to say on such an occasion? Anybody? Would be curious as what it is about. He's going to send somebody into this power-hungry, idolatrous world and his mission is to set everything right and bring everything back to righteousness. What kind of prophetic word is going to be given? So I want you to use your imagination, and, and it's okay to take a little license here. I want you to imagine all the heavens and all the earth and all creation is gathered around to witness this ordination service. Now you as the nations of the earth are particularly interested because we're bound in sin and we need to be delivered and we're waiting for this one to come. So I want you to imagine there's 10,000 times 10,000 of angels in attendance and they're all, creation is there, all the heavens, all the earth is all there to hear this prophetic announcement that's being made as the sun is sent. So you got that picture in your mind? Got the awesomeness of this picture going on here. And with that in mind, let's read verses 5 to 9 and hear the prophetic word spoken at the commissioning of the servant. Here we go. Thus says God, 
the Lord. Creator of the heavens and the one who stretched them out. He who flattened out the earth and that which comes out of it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will make you a covenant of the people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out of the dungeon the prisoner from the house of bondage those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory to another I will not give, nor my praise to idols. The former things, behold, they have come to pass, and new things I am declaring before they sprout, I will make you hear. There you go. There is the prophetic word spoken by the Father over His Son as He sends Him on His mission to rescue the world. Now I'm going to make the assumption that people are not overly familiar with Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. I am sure it's not scripture that people delve in every day of their lives. and It's important stuff because the Gospels are built upon these chapters. The New Testament understanding of who Jesus is in the Gospel, especially Mark, is built on these chapters out of Isaiah. But unfortunately, not everybody is always familiar with, with the material that's found in these verses. So I have to give a few notes of explanation. The prophecy, the word of the Lord actually begins, Isaiah chapter 40, chapter 41, goes into chapter 42. But I want you to notice that after this prophetic word is given, in verses 10 to 13, the whole world is told to start rejoicing. Because now the answer is being sent. Now God is going to do something to meet the disaster of humanity and God is responding and God is sending His Son. And the whole world in, in verses 10 to 13 who have heard these words is to break out into rejoicing. But everything that God has said here, how He has identified Himself, I am the Lord, that is my name, I'm the one who created the earth, I'm the one who flattened it out. Everything how God refers to Himself is an echo of what God has already said in Isaiah chapter 40, which would be perhaps more familiar to a lot of people than chapter 42 would be, because comfort ye, comfort ye my people, Isaiah 42, how God is going to rescue His people, and how God is this awesome sovereign God who created the heavens, created the earth, and throws the stars out in their courses, and, and who can be like unto Him? He never gets tired, He never gets weary. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
You know, all that's in Isaiah chapter 40 of the awesome, majestic bigness and the largeness of God who's sovereign and yet he's a compassionate God. Isaiah chapter 40. Well, everything we read in chapter 42 is in full harmony with everything that God has already said about himself in chapter 40. It's in harmony about his merciful nature that he has. And it's in harmony with the role that Israel was supposed to play in world history. Why God chose the nation of Israel. The role Israel was supposed to play. And how through Israel a light was supposed to shine to a lost, darkened world that has been darkened and caved into idolatry. All of that is assumed in these chapters. And when you read these chapters, you have to realize those are the themes that are constantly being stirred up. And this prophetic pronouncement builds on all of those particular themes. One thing I'd like you to notice, that a lot of the emphasis in this prophetic word is about the identity of who sends the servant. Now this is going to be important. Because it's going to tell us a lot about who he is. The one who sends the servant. And this may sound a bit repetitious, but that's not because I'm just tending to be repetitious, as I sometimes can be. It's but because the scripture is extremely repetitious. There is a message being here, who is it that sends the servant? Who is sending the servant? And that theme is going to come over three or four times in these few verses, but who it is. And we discover that it is nobody less than the sovereign God himself. It is the one who created the heavens. It's the one who spread out the earth. It's the God of Isaiah chapter 40, in other words, that is speaking this prophetic word. We discover that God has the sole right to the universe because he's the creator of it. And he has an exclusive care for it and all its inhabitants. And his goal in setting the sermon is nothing less than its redemption and its merciful restoration. No less is the goal. This is the heart of justice, that the purpose is to restore a broken creation back to God's order, but he will not accomplish it in the spirit of the world. He will not use the worldly's methods. He will not use worldly wisdom. He will not use worldly ways to get this job done. He is going to send a person to get the job done in the form of a servant. He's not going to use military might. He's not going to use politics. He's not going to use the wealth of this world. He's not going to use any of the images of prestige and power that this world uses. Those things cannot make the human heart right. Amen. Sorry, but the politician hasn't got the answer. The world's economists don't have the answer. The military powers don't have the answer. Because they can't change the human heart. And so God's way of bringing the world back to order is not through those means that the world uses, but his way of changing people is through the ministry of a servant. That's going to tell us a lot about God's nature and God's character. Let me emphasize this again. 
the lofty goal of restoring creation back to God and putting everything right, that lofty goal is given to a lowly, nameless servant. Newsflash, God is not into celebrities. He's into servants. And when the church gets caught up in celebrities, famous people, we've missed the boat. God's not into celebrities. He's into servants. Did we catch that? Because we have been sold this idea that unless we have some sort of celebrity status, we're really not worth much to God. It's simply not true. God is into nameless, nondescript people as the tool by which he makes the world right. Have we got that? Newsflash. Now, as we work our way through Isaiah, the world's powerful, the world's prestigious leaders scoff at this announcement. They can't believe what they have heard. Salvation through a servant That's not the world's way. And then throughout the rest of Isaiah, by the time you get all the way through chapter 55, you discover that the world's leaders will oppose the servant. And Isaiah would work out in later prophecies to come after chapter 42 exactly how the servant wins over the ways of the world. But that's for future messages. Again, I ask the question, I'm not being repetitious, who is sending the servant. It's no less than the one who spread out the heavens like a tent. It is no less than the one who flattened out the surface of the earth as with a hammer on a piece of metal. It is no less than God who gave the ability of the earth to produce. Out of the earth that can come gold, it could be silver, corn, wine, fruit, flowers, everything that gives life and everything sustains life comes out of this earth. And who put that into the earth? No less than God himself. But according to this, of God's greater concern is his concern over people. People are the most valuable thing he's ever created. And in the act of creation, God gave breath, God gave spirit, God gave life. And the goal of the servant is to restore people back to be in harmony with God. That is the mission, the mission. Again, forgive me for the repetition, but it's not being repetitious here. In verses 6 and 7, again, the question is asked, who is it that has called a servant who's going to solve the problems of the world through a servant? Who is it? It says, how many times it is I, the Lord, who do this? That's my name. I, the Lord, am doing this. Nobody less than this. So this is stated so many times, so emphatically, that what he's trying to get to us is don't be fooled by his appearance. Because he's not decked out in majestic clothing, but he comes wrapped in a towel, don't be fooled by his appearance. He really, that servant... 
that nameless servant really does represent God. That is the image and that is the picture of God's nature. So totally different than the world. It is God's character, it is God's power, it is God's reflection, it is God's representation. Don't be fooled. I, the Lord, have done this. This is me. This is my doing. Makes no sense to the world, but this is my doing, says the Lord. Okay, it says specifically that he's, I've called you in righteousness. Now, this is an important thing, because if we're going to minister in the name of the Lord, we have to be called in righteousness. God has to work according to righteousness. In other words, that servant has to work in full, of court, in full accordance with what is right before God. He has to conform to God's ways. He has to conform to God's mannerisms. He has to conform to God's attitudes. And he has to conform and reflect God's character. Because, another newsflash here, the spirit in which a call is fulfilled is more important than the call itself. Now think about that. The manner in which a ministry is fulfilled is more important than the ministry itself. Because you don't have a ministry, you are a ministry. It's not just accomplishing goals and doing things by any which way. No, it is the expression of God through you, reflecting the character of God that is the ministry. I'll say it again. The spirit in which you fulfill your calling is more important than the calling itself. How to make everybody go quiet, eh? I've called you in righteousness. I've called you in righteousness. So there's nothing superficial, nothing incidental, and nothing underhanded about this call. But this ministry is to be manifest at the right time, at the right place, for the right purposes, and in the right spirit. I've called you in righteousness. Very, very important. The servant is not expected to carry out the task with his own resources. God has said, I will hold you tightly by the hand. I won't let you go. What God is doing is he's giving his servant to the world. The servant is about the Lord's work to do it in the Lord's way. It's not the servant's work to figure out how he should do it in his own ability. It's got to be a reflection of the righteousness of God. It's got to be a reflection. Now, the prophecy said that he would make the servant a covenant to the people. I'm going to make you a covenant to the people. To understand this, we've got to get a little bit of background about the role that Israel was supposed to play in God's plan here. I'm going to make you a covenant. The covenant is tied up in the servant, cannot be separated You don't have a message, you are a message. 
That's so important. You don't have a message. You are a message. We have to be the message. Not just proclaim it. We have to be that message. All right? It's like Jesus saying in the Gospel of John, I am, I am, I am. He didn't just teach about the bread. He said, I am the bread. He didn't teach about the light. He said, I am the light. He was the message. Now, what does it mean, I'm making you a covenant to the people? In the historical context, Israel, who's supposed to be a light to the rest of the world, itself has plunged into darkness. And Israel, who's supposed to be a servant nation to the rest of the world, itself needs saving. The messenger (laughs) needs to be saved. Not only the world, but the messenger God had elected also needs to be saved. They had totally failed. They were supposed to be a light to the rest of the world. Back in Genesis 12, 3, through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But instead of taking on that role of being a servant to the rest of the world, Isaiah would tell us that the nation has become blind and the nation has become deaf because they themselves are in rebellion. In other words, they have hopelessly failed to embrace the covenant that God gave with them, and they've hopelessly failed in reflecting the heart of God to the world. You've heard me say this many times, but it's worth repeating again. The nation was supposed to adopt the law, love the law, enter into covenant with God, and take on the character of God, the nature of God, And when the outside world could see the glory of Israel, when they could see how much God's people love one another, they're going to say, wow, there's something true to this. We need to be the light, not just proclaim the light. By this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. They were to adopt the ways of God, adopt the heart of God, and demonstrate such a changed character and changed nature that you didn't have to tell the world what God was like. All you had to do was to say this just look at the church and you'll see what God is like. That's the goal. Look at the church and you will see what God is like. Now, can we say that? Can we tell the unbeliever, you want to know what God is like? Just take a look at the church. That's what's supposed to be. That's the method. That's the plan. That's how God wants to work. Look at my people and you'll know what I'm like. And how do we get to be like God? By entering into covenant with Him. By adopting His word. By adopting His laws. By being changed and transformed by His word. It'll take on the nature of God. And then we'll reflect the character of God without ever speaking to the world. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to speak to the world. But you know what I'm saying. We will be the message. Not just the proclaimers of the message. Israel was supposed to do that. But they didn't. They broke covenant. So what the servant has to do is he has to become the nation of Israel. He has to take on the role of Israel. He has to take the responsibility 
of Israel in his own self. And that's why when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, when you read the story of Jesus in those Gospels, you're reading the story of Israel as being repeated over and over again. Everything Israel did, Jesus does. He's reliving the whole story of Israel, taking the story of Israel into himself, and keeping covenant with God, and succeeding where Israel failed, as he takes on that role of Israel. But the problem of Old Testament Israel is they disobeyed God. So here's the new covenant. I'm going to make you a covenant. The Lord will come. He will fulfill the obligation of Israel on their behalf. He will reconstitute and redefine who the people of God are. He will enable God's people by the Spirit. And here's the new covenant. I like this. Because I'm so weak and I can't do it, God says, well, let me take your side for you. Isn't that amazing? It takes two to be in covenant. Here's my side and here's your side. I have no problem keeping my side of the covenant. You have all the problems keeping your side of the covenant. So I'll tell you what, I'll send my servant and he'll come and stand in your stead and make you able to keep the covenant so we can get together. Isn't that incredible? Now that's amazing grace. God has no problem keeping his side of the covenant. We have every problem on our side. So I'm going to send my servant to step into your life and change things radically so that we can be covenant people. So he comes and takes over and heals all your sicknesses, all your diseases, all your flaws, so that you can be the people of God, so that he can fulfill his covenant. Isn't that amazing? So when he says, I'm going to be a covenant to the people, that's what he's talking about. He says, I'm going to come over and send my servant to step into your role so that you can become what you can never be. So that we can get on with the business of who we are. Folks, that's amazing grace. That he steps into your role on your behalf. You see, if God doesn't do that, then according to Isaiah, here's what the nations of the world are going to say. They're going to say... That God of Israel, what kind of a character is that? Here he is, he binds himself to a covenant, to a people who can't keep covenant. So therefore, since they can't keep covenant, the whole plan of God fails. What kind of a God is that? And that's what the idols, that's what the nations of the world, the gods of this world, would throw in the face of the God of Israel. You make covenant with the people who can't keep covenant, and therefore it's all useless. So he says, no, no, that's not the issue. I'm going to send my servant who will be a covenant to the people. And he will heal their problem, their side of the equation. And then we get back to the business. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And so since he comes to fulfill Israel's obligation, now the prophecy can say, after I make you a covenant to the people, now there can be a light to the nations. The problem is this, the whole world sits in darkness. According to the prophet Isaiah, why does the whole world sit in darkness? What's their problem? Isaiah will make it very plain what the problem is. It's called idolatry. That's the problem. That's why they sit in darkness. What is Isaiah's teaching about idolatry? What is it here? According to Isaiah, and I just have to draw a lot of themes together here. According to Isaiah, man insists on making reality a mirror of themselves. As if we're the beginning and the end and the sustenance and the source of everything around us. The world begins with us. The world ends with us. 
and man deifies himself. But man is not self-originating as much as he like it to be. And the world doesn't revolve around man and therefore their whole view of life is so twisted and so dark and their idols just bring absolute darkness to them. But now we have light come to the nations. But here's the question. How is this darkness going to be overcome? If we're going to bring light to people who sit in darkness, how's it going to happen? How is it going to happen? And the answer is not just by proclamation, but the answer is also by the spirit in which the proclamation is made. Because the darkness is overcome by being the absolute opposite of what brought the darkness in the first place. What brought the darkness in the first place was self-exaltation making idols according to our own hearts. That's what plunged the world into darkness. How is darkness going to be overturned? By bringing the completely opposite spirit. By a servant. What brings light to this world? Servanthood. Servanthood brings light to this world. How are you going to get breakthrough? The answer is going to be servanthood. If we would embrace this covenant, become like God, we would be servants and the world would see light. That's the theme that's being developed here in Isaiah. Verses 8 and 9 of this prophetic word are going to re-emphasize that the mission of the servant is the manner in which the merciful and the compassionate heart of an almighty God is going to be revealed. Through the mission and the heart of a servant. Remember how he challenged in chapter 41 the empires of this world. How is this awesome sovereign God going to be revealed as light to the world? How will people see his nature? How will people see his character? How is it going to be done? How is the world going to know God is the only God and is the only Savior? And the answer is very simple. When people see Servants, they'll see God. That's his answer. When they see servants, they'll see God. I'm going to ask the question, am I being repetitious? I don't think so. But again, it's going to be asked on the other time in this passage, who is it that sends the servant? It's the Lord who says this, it's me. I am the Lord. That is my name. What do you mean, I am the Lord? That's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am a covenant-keeping God. I am a personal, unchanging God who is dedicated to my people. And when they fail, I send my servant in to step in to take their place so I can take them out of the failure so they can become keepers of the covenant. It is I, the Lord, who do that. My honor depends upon this covenant being fulfilled. I can't leave my people in bondage. My glory is associated with my name. And if I don't live up to my name, then what good am I? I'm sending my servant because my glory is at stake. That glory does not belong to anybody else. Nobody can receive that praise. To protect my honor, to protect my name, I have to see that the covenant is fulfilled and therefore I am sending a servant to fulfill the covenant on Israel's behalf. 
That is what's going on here. Now, because God has done that, this prophecy ends with the idea, I'm declaring new things. No, I like that. It's a new day. You can shout hallelujah. It is a new day. Another news flash. None of us need to be locked in to the inevitable results of our wrong choices in life. I'll say that one again because it's worth thinking about and it's worth shouting about. Because God has sent His servant to become what you and I could not be, none of us are locked in to the inevitable results of our wrong choices we have made in life. Should I do that a third time? None of us are locked in to the inevitable results of the wrong choices we have made in our life. He sent a servant to step into our role. That's good news. That is good news. And even before... The first shoot comes out of the ground. God's already prophesying what the full flower looks like. I declare it before it happens. Can any other idol of the world do that? How is this going to change? How is this all going to work? Isaiah will explain in later chapters here that what the servant is going to do is absorb all the wrongs that we have ever done. He's going to absorb them into himself. And instead of retaliating, he gives back to us the true selves we were created to be. He absorbs all the wrong and responds in gifts of grace. That's the heart of the servant. And that's the spirit in which all ministry is to happen and all ministry is to take place. God is declaring new things. Hallelujah. Quickly, why does God send a servant? Is there a reason why God sends a servant to do this? There's lots of reasons, but why doesn't God send an, a politician? Why doesn't he send a military triumphalist? Why doesn't he send someone like that? And I believe the answer is this, as we work through this in Isaiah, is that the people we are to minister to are, to minister to, are totally helpless to help themselves. I want to say that again. The people you and I are called to minister to are totally helpless to help themselves. They cannot do for themselves what needs to be done. Isaiah is going to testify over and over and over again that people are not even capable of calling out to God. They don't even they don't even know how to do that. Totally incapable of even calling out to God. Like sheep, they've gone astray. What the world needs is not somebody to dominate them. What the world needs is somebody to understand them. To sympathize with them. To get beneath them. To lift them up. Because in their lostness, they need to be served so they can be saved. That's the thrust of this message 
in Isaiah. Because people are like smoking flax. Ready to just be extinguished. They have no hope. People are like bruised reeds. They don't know how to heal themselves. People are confused. They have no hope. They have no idea of what to do. They give up in life. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. They need care. They need compassion. They need guiding hands. What they need is not someone to dominate them. They need servants who will gently lead them. That's what they need. Even when we bring correction, we're told in the New Testament, do it in the spirit of gentleness, spirit of meekness. Even when a correction has to be given. There's a difference between being conformed and being transformed. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What we don't want to do is dominate people as if we have all the answers and we come off like legalists and this is what you got to do and, and then we, we put this pressure on them to conform to an ideal before they can be accepted or be saved. That never works. When people get saved under those pressure tactics, it just doesn't take, it doesn't keep, it doesn't work. But what happens if we come in with the heart of a servant and we love people and we accept people and we don't condemn people, and we expose them to the work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit's a far better teacher than I am. And what will happen, there will be a desire for change inwardly. They'll be transformed because of something within them, rather than being conformed because I put pressure upon them. See the difference? And a dominionist, a triumphalist, will put pressure on people a servant will serve so they can be transformed. Big difference. Big difference. And the spirit in which we minister has got to be the spirit of the servant that causes people to be transformed, not forced to change by domination. Big, big difference. This is the mission of the servant. This is the teaching of Isaiah. This is the heartbeat. This is how God's will is accomplished. This is the expression of the kingdom of heaven. If that's how God the Father commissions his son to go into the world, then all that remains for me this morning is to ask, well, what does that mean to you and to me? How are we supposed to go out in the world? How do we fulfill the call and the mission? the same way. We've got to have the servant's heart. We notice in the Gospels, Jesus dominated demons. He dominated disease. He dominated death. He dominated nature. But one thing he never dominated was people. Never. He never dominated people. He served them. And they were transformed by inner desire, not outer pressure. That's how he did it. You and I are servants of the Lord, therefore the Bible says we must not quarrel, but we must be gentle to all the Bible says, able to teach, be patient in humility speaking to others. In Second Peter, uh, sorry, First Peter 2, when Peter was actually talking about servants who were being harshly treated by their masters, 
He said, well, take note from the servant of servants how he responded, and that's how you should respond as well. The light will go out to the world when we carry the spirit of the servant. That's how the light will go out to the world. Ministry is not about celebrities. Ministry is about nameless servants. Amen. So let's embrace his ways. Let's show the mercy and compassion of God through the spirit of service. If we attempt to win the world by dominating it, we'll lose it. If we come off as superior, we will lose it. If we come off as legalistic, we will lose it. But if we come off as compassionate and caring servants, we will win it. We will win it. That is the most important ordination service in the, hist- in, the, in the time of history and eternity. Those verses from Isaiah 42 about how God sends His Son into the world. How that is worked out in practical details comes later in Isaiah. But for this morning, let's just catch the heart of God that God is into sending servants. Amen.